This is Forward Exchanges by Neom. What's next in modern money movement, one global conversation at a time. Hello, and welcome to Forward Exchanges from Neom. We know you're trying to stay on top of fast emerging changes in global payments when it's all you can do to keep up with your day-to-day challenges. Hi, I'm Siobhan O'Neill Schwenk, and on this podcast, we are joined by trailblazers and veteran players to investigate the real driving forces that are modernizing money movement and what's building or blocking its momentum around the world. Whether you're new to global payments, a digital transformation veteran, or you just want to hear some great advice on what strategies create momentum in the global digital payments revolution, then this is the podcast for you. Today, I am joined by Dylan Lowry, General Counsel at NEAM, Isvari Sivalingam, Southeast Asia Lead at the Better Than Cash Alliance at the UN Capital Development Fund, and Pat Patel, Executive Director of Elevandi. The trio are here today to talk to us about how fintech solutions are playing a critical role in improving financial inclusion globally and what everyone can learn from what they have achieved so far. All right. Well, welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we are here to talk about financial inclusion. And I want to start with a statistic that scared the heck out of me as I was trying to make sense of it. And it's from the World Bank. Their data shows there are almost 1.7 billion unbanked people globally, mostly in developing nations and still transacting in cash. Dylan, I'll start with you. For the uninitiated, how does the financial services industry define an unbanked person? Sure. So generally, an unbanked person refers to someone who doesn't have access to a transactional account. So so the ability to store, send and receive money in an account doesn't necessarily need to be at a bank. No doubt we'll get a chance to talk about what some of the the non-bank solutions to this are during the course of this, this podcast. But that's it. They don't have access to an account where they can store their money. And so they're, they're dependent on cash. Another term that people might hear is underbanked, which you know generally refers to someone who has access to an account, but the account isn't necessarily suitable for them due to cost, access, or just sort of general lack of support to use the account that they have access to. You know, a very good point indeed that in this day and age, when we talk about accounts, we no longer talk only about bank accounts because there is a whole new variety of actors leveraging technology, most importantly, to also offer digital financial services at scale, I think, which is that important bit we need to achieve to also reach those previously unbanked or underbanked Mm -hmm. customers. Where it sort of led me to is that if all businesses and small and micro merchants, they all start with one tiny little human, this must have a huge untold impact on business globally. Isri, one thing you've recently been writing about is about digitizing payments of small and micro merchants. You noted in your report that the success would be higher if a number of key stakeholders were to come together and sort of work together towards this goal instead of separately. And you boiled it down to three actors, essentially, government, private sector, and civil society organizations and communities. So these three groups are essentially your organization's members, right? And that seems like a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Can you tell me a little bit about this collaboration with the merchants and kind of how that works? MSMEs are major contributors to the global economy and really the backbone of emerging market economies. And many of these emerging market economies are our members. So the governments of these economies are our members. Just to to add to what you've said, MSMEs are contributing to more than 40% of overall employment. And at the UN, we think that they're a crucial piece and pathway to achieving the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, particularly SDGs 1, 8, and 10. And we're obviously in the last decade towards the 2030 goals. So this is really now an urgent issue that we've all got to work on together. And you're absolutely right. You can say we have three member categories at the Better Than Cash Alliance. Those are governments, Uh, large corporates, including large corporates in the FMCG sector like Unilever, 
like Coke, like Grupo Bimbo, who are all influencing their supply chains and the small merchants at the end of their supply chains. And we do also have many international development organizations and increasingly also grassroots organizations. One new member is Seva from India. You might know them. They're one of the largest grassroots organizations focused on rural women. And we know that women particularly are key actors and key drivers of microenterprises globally. So we think that them coming together is critical. On the government's side, a key lesson is that we do need to prioritize merchant digitization as part of national strategies and plans. Many of our governments through the central banks have started formulating policies, incentives, regulatory frameworks that permit such innovations. Notably, I think what we are seeing across this region in Southeast Asia, but also globally, are national standards for QR codes that fundamentally, you know, really drive down the cost of accepting payments. And small merchants are a cost-sensitive segment, so this is a critical shift that we're seeing. And many of these QR standards and QR infrastructure is interoperable, is meant to be interoperable. So this also just means that there is added convenience for customers who are using these services. So I, I mentioned you know, earlier, some of our members are in the FMCG space and they are playing a crucial role uh, in enabling merchant digitization in their supply chains. One example, Unilever, and taking the example of Hindustan Unilever in India, since 2018, they have been working on you know, digitizing their retail channels through a flagship digital platform called Shikar, which basically enables Unilever retailers to pay and order digitally. Last but not least, you know, I think civil society organizations, communities, and this is where members like Sewa play a big role. What we've learned is that particularly for micro enterprises where they are first time, you know, users of digital payment platforms or digital financial services, they rely a lot on trusted peers or trusted partners to actually make that transition. And such community organizations cannot overstate the role that they play in this. And similarly, our corporate members are also influencing others uh, who might be non-members of the alliance. So through uh, members like Hindustan Unilever, we're also working with the National Chambers of Commerce at a, in India, for example, which then helped to bring other FMCGs, other large corporates that have microenterprises in their supply chain, other CSOs to also lead on both advocacy on the importance of digitizing this, this customer segment, but also sharing lessons on, on what has worked. Um, and we think this is, this is really important. Pat, I have a follow-on question to you for this, because if I understand it correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you come from a very interesting sort of cross-breed hybrid of government and private sector, where MAS is the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and Elevandi is sort of its open-source booster club, for lack of a better term, sort of tasked with you know, fostering an open dialogue between the public and private sectors, which I guess, depending on where you're from, sometimes they know how to play nicely in the sandbox, and sometimes they don't. So your group is trying to advance fintech in the digital economy. And I'm curious to know, knowing some of these actors that, that Isbury is, is talking about as well as you do, what are you seeing as the role of the government-private partnership in this space? And what have you seen working around some of the things that he's very talking about? I've never heard it referenced as a booster club. But it's, <laughs> Is that uh, a bad term? <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. It's just, um, yeah, it's, well, I, I can I can roll with that. I think, um, but before I answer that question, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of other comments that were made earlier. So I think um, just a question to pose out, actually, that, of the 1.7 million or billion that's unbanked, how much of those actually want to be banked under the current construct? I think that's kind of an interesting one to pose upon. And then, you know, I think some of the work that Esri is doing, I think it's really inspiring because there is a lot of, there's a big gap, clearly. And it's always focused around the cost to serve 
and leveraging technology to get that reach. And I think those are the two kind of key issues. But to kind of circle back to your question, Elevandi is an unusual company because you very rarely have organizations that ultimately spin out from a regulator and have close ties to the regulator, and not just um, in Singapore, but in Switzerland and across Africa and Southeast Asia. But it's there to try and foster that dialogue because clearly there is a gap between the way private sector is moving very quickly and, and some of the needs and applications of technology and governments and regulators and policymakers need to kind of catch up. And that's kind of quite a well-trodden kind of criticism, maybe. But then there's a flip of that as well. So for the private sector to really understand where the government's coming from, because it's just not one piece of the pie that the regulators and policymakers have to think about. It's like multiple pies at the same time, kind of juggling and, and trying to ensure that you have a fully functioning financial services economy. And so a lot of the things in terms of the role, it's, in my opinion, and you know, there's, there's a few countries that have done this really well, India being one of them, and, and parts of the Nordics and Estonia, is I, I see this relationship being around national digital goods. And so kind of public goods that are ultimately the foundations of a digital economy. And so if you look at what's happened in India and in particular Singapore, is they built this critical infrastructure to try and reduce friction. And the only way that that, that could have been built was ultimately public-private sector partnerships. And so ultimately you can see it as, as a stack. And you know, India, the India stack is very well known around the world as being pioneering. You know, you have a digital identity. You link that to an interoperable kind of payment systems. And so a, a set of frameworks there that can link to other payment systems. And then on top of that, you have your kind of data exchange, you know, financial and non-financial. And then on top of that clearly is the consent architecture, which has always been a challenge. But when you have these four kind of frameworks, platforms coming together, it takes friction out of the system. If it takes friction out of the system, then you have a good chance to ultimately reduce the cost to serve, but you can start to build real value on top of this kind of critical infrastructure. And so, you know, we've seen it in Singapore and we've certainly seen just over a billion people on a database, a digital identity database in India. And while it was painful to kind of push forward, it has served its purpose ultimately to bring people into the financial services system. So I think, you know, one of the things when, you know, kind of, circling back to your question and what Alavandi tries to do is is that dialogue and that dialogue needs to happen and there's been a few great examples I think one recently Monday just gone where we work closely with the MAS to ultimately provide a platform for the governor who is MD Ravi Menon to be able to share MAS's stance on digital assets and what we decided to do is not just have him speak about MAS's position and outline a roadmap for, for digital assets in its various forms, um, but also bring the private sector together. And, and what we did is you had a speech followed by a panel from the industry. And then we kind of had a closed door session in which we had policymakers and regulators actively in a dialogue with some of the founders in the digital asset space. And you start to kind of form these connections starts to form connections, but also ideas that can hopefully start to advance some of the things that we're doing. And um, a, another example is something we did in Switzerland with a number of regulators across Southeast Asia, across kind of the, the Bank of England. We had representation there, Bank of England, Bank de France, Bank of Italia, the Bundesbank, the Commission, as well as the Federal Reserve, all in one room with a number of cryptocurrency founders to ultimately share what should be the future licensing frameworks in this space? And so, you know, there was a number of good discussions and what we're hoping will arise from this session or a series of sessions that happened in Zurich in June is ultimately shape the future of policymaking. And so we need more of these dialogues, more of these conversations kind of in a safe zone so we can actually advance rather than, you know, start to put blockers on innovation and technology. Isri, in that vein, you recently wrote about some specific digital payments use cases that had the greatest potential impact on this digitization shift that Pat's talking about, about digital identity and interoperability um, in, into payment systems. There's this data exchange. So there are all these things that they're talking about. 
what are some of the things that you're working on in this area to sort of bring to fruition? We see merchant digitization as a major use case to drive the adoption of digital payments in most emerging markets. And I see, and I think, you know, we have enough lessons from many of our member markets to say this, largely because merchants are a critical part of that digital acceptance ecosystem that we're trying to build with our members. Financial inclusion, as, as we know, is, is really two parts. The first is access, and then the second part is use. And so creating this digital acceptance ecosystem is essential to enabling that continued use. And through our initiatives with governments and our corporate members, there are several lessons you know, that we've, we've learned. Of course, I will note that digital payment solutions vary across geographies and we were constantly seeing innovation in this sector and totally agree with Pat that you know, we must do everything we can to keep that dialogue open uh, between regulators as well as the financial services supply side to enable that innovation. There is no silver bullet, but there's certainly lessons. And I wanted to talk about four emerging lessons uh, that we see. The first one is really around uh, enabling low-cost access to shared digital infrastructure. And this is exactly what Pat was talking about earlier. He talked about it as public goods that are, are developed. And we are seeing that this is really important for driving down costs, which is fundamental to increasing access and continued use, particularly for more marginalized segments of the population, especially women. Uh, one good example of this, I said earlier, are the QR codes, which are grainy. Um, you know, we see them coming up and gaining traction, both being launched, but also in terms of volume of transactions that we're seeing across ASEAN, but also in Africa, you know, Ghana, Rwanda, as well as Latin America and the Caribbean, where our members are. The second emerging lesson I would say is that we really see the value of developing and implementing flexible incentive frameworks to drive adoption. We've seen this particularly in Mexico and Cote d'Ivoire. And this is really important in playing that catalytic role in nudging customers to habitual usage, right? And that's something that we're continuing to work on. The third one is to speak to some of these incentives, uh, some of the, the consultations that we've had with both public and private stakeholders um, uh, reveal that there are two things that we need to focus on. First is also looking at the formalization of merchants. And so this is then helping them to do the required KYC and so forth so that they can access uh, digital financial services and then with the digitization process itself. So access to credit, tax incentives are two things that really help formalization. And in Mexico, what we've seen is that larger businesses, so for example, the FMCG companies, can really play a role in influencing smaller actors or smaller enterprises in their supply chain. So for example, in Mexico, uh, larger businesses encourage their smaller partners to use e-invoices, which help to bring an estimated 4.2 million enterprises into the formal economy. And there are benefits to these merchants who are adopting digital payments. You know, they recorded a 50, 54% increase in their monthly sales revenue, and this amounts to an average of $640 per month, which is, which is significant. And of course, you know, we, we see the impact of this also at a more macro level. Um, as I mentioned, a key segment of our membership is our governments. And we see an impact on also expanding the tax base as a result of increased formalization of these enterprises. And the last point I wanted to make is, is really around trust. And uh, with that, I also wanted to come to the UN principles for responsible digital payments. But some work in, in Ghana has shown that when merchants experience some sort of digital payment fraud, it really hurts trust. And even if you try to sort of uh, bring them back with incentives, challenges or risks around uh, digital payments like fraud, like slowed or failed out transactions, do 
sour that experience, do reduce trust. And so um, this is something that we really need to focus on, building trust. It is a continuous process. And one tool that we've released last year is the UN Principles for Responsible Digital Payments, which we hope will serve as a common frame of reference to build trust and to drive this adoption. Isra, you mentioned this idea of responsible digital payments, and I sort of wanted to open that up here, but I'm particularly interested in, Pat, what your understanding of responsible digital payments is, because this idea of trust, I think, is huge in what we do. It's what you're talking about at a macro level, you know, facilitating those conversations, building that trust between leaders in various sectors. It's ultimately about doing the right thing. It's a little bit philosophical. I think, you know, if you've got the four tenets of cheap, fast, secure and convenient, and those are the things you need to do. But I think this hasn't always been the case across large parts of the world. And you've seen organizations that make really big margins on on businesses, but also you've seen this lack of transparency. And so ensuring that payments can ultimately achieve those four four elements, that, that's got to be the focus. And one of the things that Singapore has been doing quite well and, and um, countries across Southeast Asia and South Asia is building corridors. Um, so national infrastructure, so those critical systems and public goods that I talked about can actually start to talk to other national critical systems. And so there's been a few of these already set up in particular between Singapore and Thailand. And it just makes it so simple. And so ultimately, if I want to send money to someone in Thailand, all I need to know is their mobile number. And it goes across within kind of minutes. It's near real time. And the cost is is marginal. And so when these start to emerge, and we're starting to see quite a few of those, it means that organizations can start to build value on the top of this basic payment transfer and when you start to build value on top of that, that's where it starts to become quite interesting and certainly makes it easier and achieves those four things. So clearly these connections between uh, national infrastructure achieves the cheap element, it achieves the fast piece, you have security because it's via your bank, and then the convenience is where organizations can start to provide greater convenience on top in terms of lifestyle products or what you want to wrap around that actual payment. And so that's kind of one element. And I think it's very talked quite a lot about trust. And you know, once, once trust is broken, it's very difficult to get that back. And so, you know, for years, there's been a lot of large remittance companies that have made a, a fair amount of, of migrant workers. And so trying to change that is something that we've seen through the advent of fintech companies such as Neom, but but also governments that are looking to kind of reduce that friction, but also create that trust, make it so then you're not having to pay a large sum for a payment ultimately. And I think, you know, that that's got to be the, the way forward. And I think you know, some of the work that isri has been doing in, in the responsibility of payments or responsible payment space, I think is very commendable. I know that Neom is on the Payments Group subcommittee, where we provide Singapore regulators with feedback on the state of the payments industry and on issues like what Pat's talking about, and involved in some of the subgroups that support fintech talent development and digital payments for foreign workers. And I know that these are issues a lot of us at Neom, particularly leadership, are immensely passionate about. What are your thoughts on being a good actor in this space? Yeah, sure. We've got Isri in the room who who literally wrote the book on this, so she can critique my answer after I after I give my <laughs> my thoughts on on this one. From my perspective, at a high level, when we talk about uh, responsible digital payments, we're really describing building payments products and services that meet the needs of currently underserved users, that offer fair value, and that provide the users with the support that they need when they when they need that support. And so thinking about it from, you know, perhaps from a, a product building perspective, I think what it really means is being principle based when, when you're building your products. So so focusing on those on those principles that have sort of been highlighted by by Israel and Pat, uh, and, and embedding that into the way that you design, build, ship and, and support your your products, focusing on treating all of your users fairly, not just your affluent users, but, but all of your users, making sure that the products are, are priced fairly and that the pricing is transparent. 
making sure that the the products are robust uh, and continuously available, uh, sort of as has been highlighted. People and particularly vulnerable people need access to their money at all times. You, you sort of you can't have downtime. Uh, you, you can't have uh, unavailability of your funds, et cetera. It, it needs to work. Making sure that the products are safe, secure, that personal data is protected. These, these are all important. And then making sure that the, the product is accessible to a wide range of people. You know, you can't assume that everyone's coming with the same level of financial literacy, the same level of technical literacy. You need to provide uh, different users with the, the level of support that they need to be able to effectively use the product. Isn't some of this a big part of Neom's origin story to begin with, so, uh, back all the way to our beginnings as Instagram? I think that's right. So. You know, Instagram was Neom's first product, right? Which was a cross-border payments platform and, and is a cross-border payments platform uh, for consumers and, and SMBs. It was the first product that we shipped. It was where we really got our start and where we built our, our global network from. And so it remains core to Neom's overall mission uh, and, and Neom's overall product offering. In certain respects, Instagram is the most direct and, and the most visible contribution that Neom has made towards financial inclusion. You know, I think one of the interesting points to note about Instagram is that although services consumers, which which are obviously often the sort of what people think of when they think about financial inclusion, they sort of jump straight to consumers. Uh, it also supports SMBs who are leveraging it for the same purposes of you know sending and receiving money globally through Instagram. Neom's really allowed all of our, our SMB users to have access to a simple, powerful platform to send and receive money globally, which in turn gives them access to greater economic opportunity, uh, allows them to build broader business models and tap into larger markets that they might not otherwise be able to access You know, without that infrastructure being readily available to them in a manner that they can access and easily leverage. Pat, it seems as though to you from what I've read of some of your writings that a cornerstone of these principles, which is this idea of embedded finance and the democratization of technology and the leveraging of consumer technology into the business space in a way that serves these underserved populations. It seems like this, this idea is one of open banking, is it not? And I hear that term bandied about a bit, but tell me about this idea of open banking and how it works. If you kind of start with the construct of how financial services has started, you know, ultimately it was a construct around money and how you spend, how you save, share, manage, borrow and lend. I think they're the basic things that you do with money. And, you know, over time, and this is over you know, decades, you know, the, the powers that be have ultimately rules and structures around how you do these six simple things with money. And as we've evolved and we're becoming more online and the, the needs have changed, there is a gap there clearly in how you move that money around and, and the choice that you can get with that. And so I think that's kind of one of the framings of this, that the current systems aren't necessarily fit for today and to do those six basic things with money. And if you look at the end state of where we want to go to is, and this is up for debate clearly, that it's an open data world where financial and non-financial data can flow around the economy. And there's been a, a number of markets that have been talking about this. So Australia has made some strides, but it's, it's very difficult to do. If you kind of pair back a little bit to what open banking is, it's kind of the first steps towards that. And it enables ultimately consumers to have more choice, to be able to switch their accounts quite quickly but also to be able to view, and this is something, you know, in the early 2000s that a lot of people saw a need that, you know, you have multiple accounts. How can you view everything in one portal, in, in one kind of screen to see your mortgage account, to see your current account, your savings account, even other financial products? So you can manage that a little bit better. And so as we've kind of gone on in the UK, has has probably led some of the, you know, been one of the leaders in this space and, and parts of Europe through different directives. It's kind of trying to offer that choice. And I think, you know, it's fallen by the wayside a little bit because you're talking about huge organizations that are happy that you can't switch your account straightforward. It's not straightforward to do so. And so to be able to provide that consumer choice in, in where you can start to move your accounts, your data, 
in the financial services setting quickly, be able to compare different products very seamlessly and and switch then if you want to. I think that's kind of ultimately what open banking is from my perspective, but it has to move on. It has to move from not just the retail accounts, but to the full kind of sphere of financial services. And then you start to add in non-financial data. So it starts to take out the friction of these everyday life experiences. So whether you're buying a car or you're buying a house, there's an element of financial services information that comes to bear. There's an element of non-financial services information. And so if there is ways that moves towards this open data reality, you can start to bring propositions and products together that leverage financial and non-financial data, and it can be done seamlessly. And so that's where I see the world kind of moving towards. And clearly there are many risks, you know, in this open data economy, but that, that's got to be the end state. And open banking is just one step towards moving there. And I think it's always a case of, do you have the carrot or the stick? In some cases, you need the stick to move the industry forward, but there has to be the incentive. So organizations, you know, we live in a commercial world, organizations can make some money from this as well. It's kind of moving towards that direction, but but we need to we need to urge the industry to do more ultimately. And I think Europe is slowly getting there. Australia has seems to have done quite well. And then parts of Southeast Asia where they're trying to move there without the stick and trying to incentivize because when you incentivize, you, you tend to get better buy-in from organizations. And when you say where it seems to be working, it seems like Europe has sort of adopted kind of a decentralized approach. They regulate, but they otherwise kind of let the markets take care of themselves. But a lot of other countries like Singapore and India have decided, no, we're going to build these sort of core national infrastructures based yeah. on these principles. And it doesn't say it's from what I'm hearing from you, it doesn't sound like one is better than the other. They're just different. Is that a fair assessment? I think it's the starting point. So if you think infrastructure in the UK and, and Europe has been around or mainland Europe has been around for a long, long time. And so you compare that to some of the infrastructure, say 10, 15 years ago in markets across Southeast Asia, there was very little. And so, you know, I know it's quite cliched where you say, you know, countries have leapfrogged. Ultimately, there was a low starting point. And so it's easier to kind of start to build something from scratch when there isn't anything there. Whereas in, you know, in markets in, in Europe, there is this infrastructure already and it makes it really difficult to kind of move that out. And a great example is identity systems or digital identity in, in the UK is very limited and you're still working off a national insurance number and a card that you get. Whereas in other markets, it's app-based and it's digitized. And so it's easier to navigate ultimately. And I think one's not better than the other, clearly. It's just what's right for that marketplace. And ultimately in Europe, you will start to see that digitization of this infrastructure happening because it, it does need to happen, but you couldn't, you need to kind of think about the considerations of the current infrastructure that's been in place for you know decades, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Isri, this is where something like the responsible digital payments principles can really help, right? Regardless of who is building that infrastructure, or how hard someone in Europe, for example, has to push the boulder up the hill. It seems like those principles can be a big part and be a big help, no matter where you're coming from in that paradigm, right? Absolutely. And, you know, as, as Pat said, uh, with open banking as an example, I think what's most exciting now is that there's all this data, because we're using digital platforms, there's all this data that's being collected and that could potentially be used to open up new services to people who are previously underserved, right? And of course, this needs to be done responsibly. And one of our principles, principle four, uh, out of the nine principles that we've got is focused on safeguarding client data. I think open banking and these sort of regulatory uh, innovations or enablers are absolutely important, but must also be done in tandem with adequate data protection and data privacy frameworks. I would just say two things that we think are really important as, as uh, you know, building blocks for, for effective data stewardship, let's say. And the first one 
is user control and choice. Pat spoke about choice earlier. So really giving end users the tools to understand and direct how this data can be accessed and to also understand who is using that data and why. I mean, this is not easy at all, um, but it is, I think, as a principle, something that we should all strive towards. And then, of course, ensuring legitimate purpose uh, of that data, right? So ensuring that it's user interests that are prioritized when that data is used and ensuring that there are the right laws that protect and that offer recourse when there is misuse. Pat, it sounds like some of these are the same principles and norms that you were talking about. And I was aware of one effort and this was back in 2016, where the MAS developed the API playbook, if you're familiar mm. with that. And it was designed to encourage industry adoption and everybody to sort of play from the same set of rules, as it were. I know that, that was a local effort. Did you see that scale out at all? Did anybody else sort of pick up the torch and run with it? Or anything else recent that you can kind of talk about? I think uh, it was uh, a good initiative, 2016, and it's the carrot approach rather than the stick approach from the government. And we did see a lot of APIs being kind of put into this playbook and enabling, you know, fintechs, but other banks to start to connect and experiment. But, but what's ultimately happened here is it's morphed into a regional sandbox and, and this is known as the API exchange. So it's Apex, and that's a collaboration between the World Bank or the World Bank's IFC, the ASEAN Bankers Association, MAS, and a number of kind of private sector organizations. And ultimately what that's intended to do is enable banks and fintechs to be able to connect efficiently, quickly, effectively um, in a safe zone to be able to test and trial products. And so it works off the back of APIs. And so we're seeing a lot of activity in that platform. It's had some challenges, you know, clearly trying to get buy-in from, you know, the, the banks and, and, and fintechs has taken some time. It's getting a, a lot of attention now as other organizations are coming in. Temasek is, is, is playing a key role in its future as well. And so we'll start to see this happening, not just in Singapore, but across multiple markets. And like I said, it's the carrot approach because what this does is speed up the proof of concepts. It enables greater credential sharing. So there isn't any, you know, reduces the risks ultimately. And you can get a product to market quite quickly. And I think that's the way we see things kind of cross-industry and cross-regional kind of sandbox to come together and get organizations experimenting because there's a lot of friction still in the system. There are lots of opportunities and to be able to bring traditional organizations together with fintech is where you start to get some really special kind of propositions coming out to marketplace, whether that's kind of on the retail side or the corporate side. Retail side is probably an easier one because you can get products serviced quite quickly and it serves a mass scale marketplace. So, yeah, I would say that there has been good progress. I still think if it was a scorecard, I think so far so good, but could do better. And, you know, that there is you know still some way to go with that. Mm -hmm. Dylan, you come at this from sort of the other side of the fence in that Neam's reason for being is as a scalable force and framework that plays nicely in this sandbox and with things like the API playbook, et cetera, that any financial institution or any business really that wants to embed finance in their operations can build on. How do we make sure that we play nicely in what is admittedly a very crowded sandbox? Really, Neom is a, is a platform for other businesses to build their own financial services products on top of, right? That's at its core what Neom is. And be those other, you know, be our customers, financial institutions, fintechs, or other customers that are interested in embedding financial services into their products. So how can Neom influence financial inclusion? I mean, it's, it's really through those customers that, that our influence is, is maximized, right? And so we're creating the tools that, that other, other companies can use to build novel new products that can access and serve, you know, traditionally underserved populations, they can focus on building that product, building that customer experience, and they can leave the backend infrastructure to Neom. Uh, and that is cooperation at its heart, right? And playing with other participants in, in the ecosystem. I, I think the other, the other point to note, and, and Pat sort of touched on this, is 
you know, this isn't a zero-sum game. There is opportunity here for both traditional financial institutions, for newer fintech providers, and, and for others to play a role and, and to collaborate and cooperate on identifying areas that they can collectively serve better than they have than they have been served in the past. So, you know, I think we're, you know, we're seeing a, a lot of new market participants, particularly fintechs, but fintechs that are partnering with, with traditional financial institutions that, that are identifying these opportunities and building products that are tailored and focused on specific segments of the population that perhaps were, were difficult for traditional financial institutions to serve well. And, you know, it's unsurprising, right, that it's difficult for one business to service all of the potential users out there. You know, it, it makes sense that targeted products that are, that are designed with a specific problem and challenge in mind are potentially going to be more effective in, in, in some areas. You know, I think a good parallel from, from my experience to, to draw here is, you know, you don't have to go too far back in time, even in, in the US and other developed countries, when it was really difficult for merchants to accept payment cards. Uh, and it wasn't really until the advent of independent sales organizations who aggregated all of those small, long-tail SMB merchants, built a new business model, built a product that worked for those merchants, that was, you know, affordable, that, you know, sort of met their needs, that you started to see wide-scale wide adoption of payment cards, which have now become, you know, fairly ubiquitous in, in developed countries. So that was a good example of this sort of collaboration between new business models and traditional financial institutions. And, you know, I expect that we'll continue to see that level of collaboration, developing new products and services to sort of meet this underserviced populations. Pat, your focus seems to be lately on the future of financial services. And you've said previously, and I'm thinking about the report that you published back in November, how Web 3.0 will impact the financial services industry. You've said that you believe it will be the intersection of industry data and technology that will drive forward some of these new opportunities and commercial models and customer value propositions. And I take that to mean Web 3, DeFi, crypto, if I'm reading between the lines a little bit here. But those are big areas of transformation. Can you just maybe pick one and maybe be a little more specific? In 2020, the managing director of MES commissioned a study within the organization to look at what the future financial services would look like, what it may, means for its communities of banks and fintechs, but also what it means for the positioning of the regulator. And this work, there are a number of themes that came out of this internal piece of work. And one of them, you know, started to coalesce around Web3 and the potential impact, but also the implications and where the opportunities could be. And so this work took a life of its own and we decided to have that as a, a key thematic last year at the Anchor Activity in Singapore, which is the Singapore FinTech Festival. And so it, it kind of galvanized the community to start thinking about what this Web3 world would look like, how it will impact different verticals within financial services, including the regulator, how it impacts retail banking, corporate banking, asset management, investment banking, and the insurance and pensions market. And inclusion ultimately was that we're still in the early days of this. And the best way to kind of view this in terms of the importance of it is if you think when the world moved from a web one, web 1.0 model to a, a web 2.0 world, you know, you saw that transition happen and it left a number of companies in its wake. It left the regulators a little bit behind in terms of understanding what was going on. And it spawned the likes of Airbnb and Uber and these huge giants that largely emanated from the US. But there were a few interesting organizations that came out of Europe, in particular the Nordics. And so if you think that jump happened, and, you know, there were a lot of governments, society and, and companies that were left in its trail. And, you know, these new businesses come through to kind of decimate industries. So if you think travel and tourism, you know, it become decimated through the advent of Airbnb. And so we see that same transition happening in this Web3 world where ultimately AI, so advancements in artificial intelligence is coming together with decentralized networks and ultimately that is the blockchain and potentially cryptocurrency being the technology of choice and then the third element of this is the early onset of quantum computing so smarter processing so greater processing capabilities and these three technologies in the same way that mobile social and cloud came together 
to kind of fuel the Web2 world, you've got these three transformational technologies that will fuel the Web3 world. And yet to say where we currently are, we're still some way away from being in that Web3 world. And I think there's a lot of risks and implications before we even get there. But I see things moving towards a Web 2.5 state where it's in between both of the Web 2 world and the Web 3 world. I hope that kind of gives a little bit of light on this. There's lots of questions, don't get me wrong, because this is a paradigm shift in thinking in the same way that no one would think that you could create businesses of mobile, social and cloud that would lead to global enterprises. I've heard a common critique in that technology innovations like the ones you're talking about often transplant inequalities from the physical world to the digital and perpetuate them. And there's so much progress in the physical world that we would like to replicate instead. Are there any of these technologies that you think will be instrumental in helping advance that proposition and and propagate the good rather than the bad? When the original concepts of, of blockchain, you know, ledger technology and, and cryptocurrency, this all came together with a democratization in mind and inequality. Clearly, as things have gone on, you know, you've seen certain organizations going down a direction which is more greed and growth related, whereas you've got still a part of the community that retains that principles of democratization of finance and you know, the essence of these technologies is intended to do that. It's intended to remove friction. It's intended to move the intermediaries that have made a fair amount of money through doing very little and maybe just offering that trust. And so if there are technologies out there, which they clearly are, that can provide that trust, remove the middleman and provide cheaper ways to do things, then, then absolutely, you know, this is where it should be going towards. It's just, you've got these structures that I talked about um, that have been in place for decades that kind of wrap around rules, financial structures that wrap around those six or six or seven simple things you want to do with money, which is that spend, save, share, manage, borrow and lend. And so these new technologies, and as we move to this Web3 world, which is some way away, will hopefully start to remove the inefficiencies and, and ultimately the intermediaries that, that, that serve very little purpose in, in future financial services. Isvri, I know that you obviously share some of that concern about transplanting and inequalities. Are there any technologies in particular that you're excited about? As an actor within the UN, we have less of a position on specific technologies, but more of a position on how these technologies should be applied and how they should serve people, right? And and that's what essentially we're trying to do also with the principles. We're very much advocates of digitization, digital payments, digital financial services, but we we also think it's really important to focus on their responsible implementation. Part of this responsible implementation also means that they should be inclusive, which means that they should be offered in a way that, you know, customers that were previously underserved by the banking sector uh, or the financial services sector should now have access to it. To build trust in digital payments, they need to work every time. They should be fair. They should be transparent. They should be accountable. You know, and of course, sometimes there are failures, but when that happens, they should offer recourse. And this is really what we are trying to save the UN principles for responsible digital payments. What lies ahead for responsible digital payments this year into 2023? What are you excited about? After the last two years, I think the coming together of the public and private sectors, I think you're going to start to see more of that and hopefully um, a movement away from deglobalization, you know, because I think countries, organizations of different shapes and sizes need to come together. And we're beginning to see signs of that. I think some of it's going to be fueled by current market conditions, that it becomes a necessity. And hopefully if we fast forward one to three, three to five years, we'll start to see organizations and countries come together to try and, you know, ensure that we solve some of the basic things around payments. At the Alliance, this responsible agenda is what's driving our work. And in particular, I think we also have 
a focus on women who we recognize have been disproportionately impacted by COVID, of course. Um, and there is already an existing gender gap when it comes to using digital payments and digital financial services more broadly across the world. So really, you know, with our initiatives, with our members, there's really a focus on ensuring that the policy changes that are being made, the regulations that are being developed, as well as, you know, the products and services that are being developed by extension of that, all apply a uh, stronger gender lens. I'm just excited to, to see, you know, what what's going to get built, right? There's literally billions of people there who need access to these digital payments and who need new products and, and new solutions. That's a huge opportunity for people to tackle, right? And, and I, you know, th there's a lot of energy go going into it. And it's, it's, it's exciting to see, you know, what can be built, you know, how, how will it work? And it's, it's sort of one of those, those classic win-win scenarios where there's, there's an opportunity here to build exciting new products that have meaningful impact on, on people's lives. It's, it's sort of a really exciting space from, from that perspective. As those products grow and, and, and ship, we're going to continue to see a regulatory response to that inevitably uh, as, as governments look to ensure that traditionally underserved people are protected adequately as new products come out. And then I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Pat raised digital and, and cryptocurrencies because I don't think you can, you're, I don't think you're allowed to have a, a conversation around digital payments without discussing them. You know, at, at the moment, I think it, it remains to be seen what role they're going to play in this space, but seems like a reasonably good bet at this point that there will be a role there. And, and so, you know, that continues to be a, a space to watch of interest. I, I think I'm just... Um ultimately happy that we're out of a lockdown and we can start to kind of connect again and hopefully we can do things like this in person over the course of the year. I think that's the piece that gives me hope ultimately considering what it's been like in the last few years. I love that. Pat, Eastbury, Dylan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is all the time that we have today. I want to say thank you so much to Dylan, Pat, and Asbury for joining us to give us some insight and discuss what modern money movement is really all about. On this show, we're investigating the real driving forces that are modernizing money movement and what's building or blocking its momentum around the world. Make sure you're subscribed. Check us out at neom.com slash forward exchanges or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Siobhan O'Neill-Schwenk, and this has been Forward Exchanges from NEAM.